The Lord Jesus, when He instituted the Lord's Supper in the upper room, said these words to His disciples, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. The word testament there can also be translated as covenant, and that is how we understand and what we understand a testament to be. A testament is a covenant. Similar language is also used in Hebrews chapter 7 and the verse number 22, where it says that Jesus was made a surety of a better testament or a better covenant. And so whenever we think about the occasion in the upper room, how the Lord Jesus Christ had gathered His disciples together, and He was instituting the Lord's Supper with them, and He says to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It was His covenant, and He was, what was He doing for them? He was enacting a covenant meal for those disciples and for His church. A covenant meal whereby we remember, yes, His death till He come, but the death that ratified and procured the covenant that you and I currently are in. Now, what is the significance whenever we think about a covenant? The covenant that Jesus Christ enacted there in the upper room, or the idea that He is the surety of a better covenant? Well, the Bible really is a book of two major covenants. We think, first of all, in the broader sense of covenant theology, that God made a covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And that covenant is commonly called a covenant of works. And it's called a covenant of works because God said to Adam, if you obey me, then you will live. And if Adam had have obeyed God, and Adam had have obeyed the law of God, then Adam would have lived forever in paradise there in the Garden of Eden. But we know the story. Man fell. He broke the covenant of works. And so he brought judgment and death into the world. Then in Genesis chapter 3, we find the beginning of the covenant of grace. That covenant that God made with Adam, our representative, in the Lord Jesus Christ, that covenant that is a covenant of grace because God is now saying to us that Jesus Christ would go and that He would die for us, His blood would be shed, and we would be the beneficiaries of the blessings in Christ Jesus. That covenant of grace, or covenant of grace, as I said, introduced in Genesis 3.15, has maybe two major components. We have the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and then we have the New Covenant. Now, whenever we think about these two testaments we have in our Bible, some people like to put a very sharp distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. They try to separate, put a great divide between them so that they would say, well, they're completely different. They do not relate to one another in any regard or way. But that is not true because it is the one covenant of grace. Whether you read in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant or you read in the New Testament with the New Covenant, you just see God dealing with His people in grace. Some of the similarities between the Old and New Covenant are the parties. God is the party and His people. There's always two parties to a covenant, so there is God and His people, same for old and new. There are promises in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant, blessings for obedience, but also punishment for disobedience. There's also a penalty. Judgment would come upon them who would break the covenant. But there's also a covenant sign. In the old covenant, it was circumcision. In the new covenant, it is baptism. But there was also a covenant meal. In the old covenant, it was the Passover. But in the new covenant, we have the Lord's Supper, as we will remember this morning. In the old covenant, there was a different administration. There was a different system. 
You had the ceremonial law with all of its sacrifices and offerings and its Levitical priesthood. But as we enter into the new covenant, we realize that it's not new in the sense that it has no connection to the old, but rather it is new because all of the old types and shadows in Jesus Christ have now been fulfilled in Him. And in many ways, as Paul writes to the Hebrews, this is what Paul is trying to help them understand. He's trying to teach them, listen, I'm not telling you that the old covenant has now no bearing upon you at all, that the old covenant system and everything else is now just completely obsolete and done away with, and you should just completely forget about it. No, he's pointing them to Jesus Christ. And he's saying, oh, you want a great high priest? Look to Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. You want the, the sacrifices for sin? Well, look to the man who has offered the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And so we see in that, yes, a change of administration in the fulfillment in Christ, but we also see in that its continuity, that it is one complete covenant of grace that Christ speaks to us through and that we have this morning. Now, as Paul is seeking to unfold to these Hebrew Christians the new covenant, the constant theme throughout the book of Hebrews is this, that the new covenant is better. It's better. Hebrews 6, or sorry, Hebrews chapter 8 and the verse number 6, it says, but now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. And then if we read Hebrews chapter 4 and the verse number 14, it's talking about our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's saying, seeing then we have a great high priest. And Paul adds in the word great. The term great was not something that was ever used to describe the, the, the high priests under the old covenant administration, but Paul is seeking to show them Christ is better. He is a greater high priest than all of the other priests that came before. Then in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, he's saying to them, listen, we have a better sacrifice because it is once for all. And so the thrust of this argument, again, as I've said, is not completely disregard and forget the old, but rather come to Jesus Christ because everything about this new covenant is made better in Him. And so we read this morning, Hebrews 7, verse 22, that Jesus Christ has made the surety of a better testament, a better covenant. Now, we've understood something this morning in our introduction about what that covenant is. We'll not go through that again, though we'll make reference to it. But what does it mean this morning that Jesus Christ is the surety of a better covenant? Well, for that, let's go to an example in the Old Testament. We'll turn to Genesis chapter 43. The book of Genesis in the chapter number 43. And we're going to read the verse number 8 and 9. Now, let me fill in a bit of the background of a very familiar story. Many of you will know it. We know that Joseph, his brothers envied him. They took him, threw him in a pit. Judas spoke up to spare his life. And so they sold him into captivity. God in His providence had so arranged it that Joseph was taken from Potiphar's house to a prison to be made prime minister over the land of Egypt. And he did this so Joseph would receive a revelation from God about the coming famine and the coming blessing. And in the time of blessing, they would store up the provision and then he would be able to survive or keep alive his own family in the time of famine. And so his brothers have went to before Joseph. They do not know him. 
Joseph has charged them with being spies. And now he says, listen, to prove your credibility, go back and get Benjamin and bring your youngest brother, who would have been Joseph's full brother, bring him to Egypt that I may see him so I know that you're telling the truth. And this is where we break into that story. Judah now is going to Israel or going to Jacob, his father. And he says, verse number eight, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt I require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. What was Judah saying? He's saying all of the responsibility for the care of Benjamin will come upon me. And if I fail on my duty to bring Benjamin back, then you can require whatever punishment and sentence at my hand. Judah was putting himself in there as the guarantor, as the guarantee that Benjamin would come back to his father Jacob. Then we see in Genesis chapter 44 and the verse number 3, or sorry, verse number 33. And again, they've brought Benjamin. They have found, as they were leaving again, Joseph, the cup that is in the sacks of the brethren. And now Judah comes back. He realizes what is happening here, that Benjamin possibly could die because Benjamin is being charged with theft from the prime minister. And notice how he intervenes here. Genesis 44, verse 33. Now, therefore, I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. For how shall I go up to my father, and the lad be not with me, lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come upon my father. Here is Judah acting as the surety. Here is Judah standing in between Benjamin and the, the danger of Joseph at that time. And he's saying, listen, take me. Let me be a slave. Let me be a bondman. Do whatever you would do to me. But I have vowed to protect Benjamin. And you cannot require judgment or punishment on his behalf. You must punish me instead. And so we carry that thought into the New Testament. Just as the Hebrews would have done as well. And it shows us how Jesus Christ is our surety because He is the one who has guaranteed to bring us into this new covenant. He is the one who has guaranteed to keep us in this new covenant. He is the one who guarantees to bless us with all the spiritual blessings of this new covenant. And so Jesus Christ is the guarantee. It's His covenant. Why? Because He guarantees His people's position and their blessing in this new covenant. And so this morning, I want you to consider with me Jesus, the surety of the new covenant. Jesus, the surety of the new covenant. Now, as we think about this and we draw it back to our communion service this morning, we think again of those words in the upper room. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. What was Christ saying there? He was saying there that in order for you to be brought into the new covenant, in order for you to receive the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of the Spirit of God, and all the other promises that we have in Jesus Christ, His blood had to be shed. He had to purchase it for us. And so keep that in view this morning as we're thinking about how Jesus guarantees the promises and blessings of the new covenant to us as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning and we're partaking of that covenant meal. 
We ought to be thinking about ourselves. We're only here today. We're only doing this because of what Christ has done for us through the merits of His precious shed blood. But I want to unfold for you today just three ways in which Jesus Christ, in which Jesus Christ is the surety or He guarantees the blessings of this better covenant. And this is what Paul goes on to, uh, this is what Paul goes in to describe or to unfold to these believers. He is the surety of a better covenant. He guarantees this better covenant for us because of three reasons. First of all, His eternal priesthood. Secondly, His endless intercession. And then thirdly, His efficacious sacrifice. So look with me first of all here at the verse 23 and 24. Jesus guarantees the blessings of the new covenant to come upon us because of His eternal priesthood. It says in verse number 23, And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Here we find a contrast is made between the priesthood that operated under the old covenant and the priesthood of Jesus Christ for us in the new covenant. Now, Paul has already said that Jesus Christ has been made an high priest. Verse number 21, he has been made by an oath of God. Psalm 110, the verse number 4, Jesus Christ there by the Father was ordained a high priest for his people to represent them before before him, before the Father. And so, he's in this order of Melchizedek, this endless priesthood, and now he compares them to the old priests of the old covenant. Notice what he says, that there were many priests. Now, what does it mean that there were many priests? Well, it can speak in two regards. First of all, it can speak of the many priests that were required in order to fulfill the function of the old covenant. Uh, Some commentators would say that at any given time, in the temple, there was around 1,000 priests that were required to perform all of the ceremonies, all of the functions, the lighting of the lamps, the offering of the sacrifice, burning incense, and etc. Around 1,000 priests required to perform all of that function to keep that old covenant system going. But in this, we see the greatness of Christ. Because Paul is saying, listen, you know that in Jerusalem there's like a thousand priests, and every single day they're doing all of these duties time and time and time again. And it's a massive enterprise, it's a massive system. But now look to Jesus Christ. For instead of needing a thousand priests or even a hundred priests, there's only one priest that performs all of the functions under that old covenant system. And again, Paul is not trying to disparage the old covenant system, which was so dear to these Hebrews which they had still a great affection to because they grew up with that throughout their entire lives. But he's simply trying to show them Jesus Christ is better. He's far better. We have one priest that we can go to. And in him, all of these spiritual realities, whether it's the lighting of the lamps, whether it is the incense, whether it is the sacrifice, whether it's all the the portrayal of the temple and how it was designed and built, it's all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But also this term, many priests, can also speak of the many high priests that there were throughout the years. John Gill in his commentary said that under the first temple, 18 high priests ministered. Then the second temple was built, and under the second temple, more than 300. More than 300. And he goes on to show the imperfection of this priesthood 
since it was in many hands, no one continuing and being able or being sufficient to execute it, but Christ is the one and only high priest. These men died. Successively, they died. And someone else would come along and take their place, and they would die, and someone else would come along again. And in many ways, when you, you think to yourself, you know, the Jews are in many ways just like us, when you get a good high priest, one that you really like, and perhaps one that was able to order all the functions of the temple and tabernacle so very well, and then he dies on you, and he leaves you, and somebody else comes along, and there's always change, and there's always movement, and so on. But now he's pointing them to Christ, and he says, Christ never dies. He lives in the power of an endless life because this man, because he continueth forever, verse number 24, he'll never die. He'll never leave us as his people. And so here we see something of the superiority of Jesus Christ this morning. As ministers come and go, as the priests in the old covenant system came and went, Yet there is one faithful high priest who abides forever and who will never leave his people or never forsake his people or who never will, by the bonds of death, be taken away from his people but will forever be with us. He presents to us Christ in his eternality. This man, and it's it's interesting he uses that word man. I do believe he's emphasizing the fact Jesus Christ is a man. Yes, he is a man, just like the old covenant priests were men too. But this man, He's different because He continues forever. He has this unchangeable priesthood. There cannot be another high priest. And this is something that even, you know, as we think today about many Christians getting involved in Israel and so on. I, I remember one time being in Israel, and we were going around a certain museum or something, and the, the Jewish tour guide, he was showing all of the things they're collecting in order to build the next temple. And I just saw people getting very enamored with this. So we've got this and that, the levers and all this here. And people were getting very excited. And then at the end, they asked for donations. If anybody wanted to give money to help with the building of the new temple. I was a very young Christian, but there was a more mature believer beside me. And he just turned to me and he says, what are these people doing? And then I thought about it. I thought, yeah, what are they doing? Why are Christians giving money to build another temple? Why are Christians giving money to, or, to erect or to bring back the function of a high priest? There cannot be another high priest because Jesus Christ will never die. And He abides forever in that function as a high priest. So I say that. Don't get caught up in all of that. You have a high priest this morning. You have one that can offer up the sacrifices, the spiritual sacrifices unto God for you. He is superior, and He is also sufficient for all that we would need. And Paul is essentially saying to these Hebrews, listen, take your eyes from off the temple. Let that old system begin to wax old and vanish. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13, which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. He's saying, listen, let it pass away, because you have everything you need in Christ, all fulfilled in Him. We need today a high priest. We need someone to represent us before God. That primarily was the function of the priest. The priest represented the people before God. You see the the difference in the, the offices between a prophet and a priest. The prophet, he represented God to the people. He spoke God's word, communicated to them. But the priest, he represented the people towards God. 
And we need that representative. And Christ is that representative we need. As we come to the communion service this morning, let us think that we have one who represents us in heaven. That we are feasting on the body and the blood upon one who stands in heaven forever and forever, representing you before the throne of grace. Now, Paul goes on to unfold here, secondly, something about this representation. Because in the verse number 25, it speaks about his endless intercession. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Here we find one of the most wonderful truths in Scripture, I believe. The truth that Jesus Christ prays for his people. He prays for his people. How is it that you and I are saved? How is it that we are sanctified? How is it that we continue in the Christian life? How is it that someday we will be glorified in Christ Jesus? It's all because our Savior prays for us. It's all because He intercedes for us every single day. He ever lives to make intercession. Notice some things about this intercession. First of all, it is endless. Verse 25, seeing He ever liveth. He ever liveth. Christ lives forever. He continues as a priest forever. And therefore, His intercession for you and for me is also eternal. It shall never end. It'll never end. I remember whenever... I came to Canada, there was people who said to me, you know, we're going to pray for you. Pray for you. And you take great encouragement from that when people say they're going to pray for you and you know that they mean it. But you know what happens to those people? As I went back home to Northern Ireland last year and there was a three-year gap between leaving and going home, some of those people are in heaven. Some of those people died. And you feel it. You feel it in yourself. You just, there was that old saint of God, that old godly lady who was at every prayer meeting in our church, and she was always praying. And the people would have told me she was always praying for you, and she was always before the Lord in her home, praying for, our, or for myself and the family. And, and you felt the blessing and the encouragement of that, and the strength in that, that somebody was praying for you, interceding for you, and yet she's now in heaven. And you feel that, that lack. You miss that. And yet, my friend, we have such a high priest that his intercession for you and I will never end. He is not like one who says, I'm praying for you, brother. I'm praying for you, sister, and then forgets about you. Or one who says, I will pray about you, and then dies and passes away, and their prayers have ceased. No, he continually prays for his people time and time again. His intercession, like the incense in the temple, is constantly rising up to the very throne room of grace, and he's praying for his people. He ever lives to make intercession. But secondly, Christ's intercession is by His presence. Christ's intercession is by His presence. It is true to say, as it is relayed to us in verse 25, that Christ would audibly pray for us. I, I do believe that He audibly would pray for His people in heaven. I do believe He brings our very names to the throne of grace, just as the different names were written on the high priest in the old covenant and so on. But Christ, by His very presence, intercedes for you. Just the very fact that Jesus Christ is standing in heaven at the throne of grace means that He is interceding for you. Why do I say that? Well, was He not raised for our justification? Does He not still, even in His glorified body, bear the scars of Calgary? Are those scars 
Is His resurrection not proof for us that He is resurrected to justify a people and to sanctify them and to glorify them and to preserve them and to keep them? Christ is our guarantee that we someday will be like Him and brought up into glory just by His very being there in heaven. Oh, my friend, if you could not even think today of Christ, how Christ could ever pray for you as a Christian with all of your feelings, with all of your sins, and so on. Why would Christ ever audibly lift my name before God? My friend, He's already interceding for you. And the very fact that He's there, the fact that He's there. It's a wonderful thought to think that as Christ prays for us, He prays knowing the weaknesses, the frailties, the difficulties of His people. He takes our prayers and perfects them and brings them before the throne of grace. But also we notice that Christ's intercession secures our salvation. Notice what it says in verse 25, Wherefore He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him. Notice the great ability that He has here. He is able to save them to the uttermost. Now that term save, I believe, is being used in its broadest fashion. To speak there about being saved, it's speaking right from the very point of our regeneration where we're made alive in Jesus Christ. We're taken from deadness, brought into life, right until the very end point where we are glorified in Him. It's speaking about the entirety of Christ's work for you. The entirety of redemption bearing fruit within your life. And so, he's saying here that he is able to save them to the uttermost, forever and forever. He intercedes for us, He prays for us, and He guarantees for you and me the fullness of the blessings of salvation. He saves us from all of our sin, from the worst of our sins, and even from persistent sin in our lives. He saves us from all besetting sin. Christ completely and totally delivers His people. Know how often sin is that great barrier between us and God. Not in our legal standing before God, for we're justified, but in that relationship of father and child. Just as whenever you did something wrong when you were little, you knew you had angered your parents or offended them, and there was that hesitation to go to them to ask them for something so close to having done something wrong, but not with Jesus Christ. We simply have this access to come into Him, and He saves us from all of that guilt, from all of that sin. Dear Christian, are you, have you been discouraged by sin this week? Have you been discouraged by your own flesh? Have you been discouraged and you think to yourself, how could it be that I, I do these things? How, how could it be that I could ever be free from sin someday? My friend, look to the one who is able to save you to the uttermost. He's able to save to the uttermost. That is his ability, but also his accessibility that come unto God by Him. Perhaps there's an unbeliever here this morning. Perhaps there's someone here that doesn't know the Lord. Let me ask you, have you ever come to God through Jesus Christ? Have you ever come to God seeking your sin to be dealt with? Have you ever come to God seeking Him that He would forgive you of your sin? Because, my friend, there's access to God. There is access to Him. Though every other God that men would create and invent. You have a thousand hoops to jump through to get even remotely close to them. But here for the sinner, there is access to God through Jesus Christ. What did Christ say? 
when he spoke to the multitude, ye will not come to me that ye might have life. It's not on God who has barricaded up the way for the sinner to come to him. It's not on God who has withheld the sinner and holding them back. No, it's their own sin. It's their own stubbornness. It's their own pride that keeps them from coming to God. And so, dear unbeliever this morning, the way to God, it's opened up for you. It's through the narrow gate. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. If you come to Him, you'll know salvation and all the blessings of this new covenant. But if you leave this place today, still in your sin, you'll never be able to charge God and say, God, you made the way too difficult. God, you made the way too hard. God, you made the way too dark. That I could not see. No, for here you have Christ this morning. The way is being presented to you. Will you come to Christ this morning? Will you come to Him? Will you, through faith, put your trust and your hope in Him for salvation? Will you rely on Him to save you in life and to save you in death? Or will you leave still in your sin? And we, as we think again about how Christ prays for His people, we have a wonderful example of that in Scripture. Just to conclude the second point, in Luke's gospel, chapter number 22, Luke's gospel, chapter number 22, we find there the story of, or the prediction of Peter's denial. Peter, as you know, is quite outspoken. He's determined here that he's not going to deny his Savior. And notice what the Lord says in verse 31 of Luke chapter 22. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you. He wants you, Peter, because he knows that you're in the inner circle of the disciples. He knows the influence you have, even generally. He knows your ability. He knows how I could use you, Peter. And he wants you, Peter, that he may sift you as wheat, that he may separate you, pull you apart, and destroy you, Peter. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. What a wonder here that the only thing that made Peter different to Judas was the fact that Christ had prayed for him. Was there really a, a big difference between Peter and Judas? Was there? I, I know that Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ for money. For 30 pieces of silver. But he also ran and threw the money back at the men. Peter stood far enough away from Christ so he could see what was happening to his Savior, but not close enough so he could be identified with him. And when he was challenged on three occasions, his, his force of rejecting his Savior became stronger and stronger and stronger until he looked at Christ and he cursed him out. Was there really such a big difference between the sin of Judas and Peter? Why is it that Peter was preserved and kept, and Judas went and hung himself and died? Why is it? It's because Christ had prayed for Peter that his faith will fail not. Dear Christian, do you feel at times your faith under pressure? Do you feel at times your faith is up against the wall? When you see the horrible atrocities in this world, and you wonder, Lord, Why? Why has this happened? Why has this been allowed? When you perhaps even look at your own sins and your own heart, and you think to yourself, well, how could it be that I could know the Lord? How could it be that I could be a Christian? I keep falling into the sin. I keep doing the same thing over and over again. 
How should I go on and so on? And yet you do. You do go on. You do persevere. Why is that? It's because Jesus is praying for you. He's praying for you. Oh, my friend, I pray that you would take today to your Savior, your high priest, all of your griefs, all of your burdens, all of your sorrows. I pray that you would come to him and cast all your care upon him, knowing that as our great sympathizing high priest, that he cares for you. He cares for you. And that's, that's another point I should make here, that as the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for us, as you think about the high priest in the Old Testament, offering up that intercession, he didn't know the people. He knew the tribes, didn't he? Benjamin, Levi, so on. But he didn't know them individually. He didn't know them as people. He did not have any clue who some Hebrew child was in some tribe of Levi or Judah or Judah or so on. He didn't have a clue. But our high priest, he comes before the very throne of God and he knows every one of his saints individually. And he prays for us at that individual level and he represents us at that individual level. And so, dear Christian, unburden yourself to the Lord. Throw all of your concerns upon him, all of your griefs, all of your weights, all of your discouragements because Christ knows you as an individual. He knows you deeply and personally, perhaps even more than you know yourself. And he is able to take all of the intimate details of your life and he's able to bring them before the Lord. There's things that you will never pray in a public prayer meeting. There's things that you will never even pray for in family worship. There's perhaps even things that you may not even be able to be comfortable praying with your wife or your spouse. And there may be even be things that whenever you come to pray, you're, you're, you're just, you cannot just get them out, even though it's just you and God. And yet, what, what does Christ do? He sees the heart. He hears the groaning of the heart, Romans 8. And the Spirit of God comes along and helps us and aids us and makes intercession, even the groanings, even the afflictions of our heart, even the things that are not uttered. Christ hears them, and He intercedes for us on His behalf. What a great high priest we truly have. But thirdly and finally, His efficacious sacrifice. Paul then goes on to talk to these Hebrews in chapter number 7. He begins to describe the high priest. For such an high priest became us, who is holy. Christ was holy, perfectly holy. He was harmless. He was undefiled. He was separate from sinners. He was made higher than the heavens. That's speaking about his ascension up into glory. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Here, Paul is trying to unfold to them the superiority of Christ in his person. He is us. He's a man. He, he knows what it is to have the temptations thrust upon him off this world. And yet, he's holy. He's harmless. And he's undefiled. He is as the term is used by theologians, he is impeccable. Impeccable. There is no sin in Jesus Christ. There is nothing of defilement within. And we go even a step further to say that not just was there not even any sin in Christ, but there was not even the potential for sin in him. Because if there is potential to sin, it is a sign of something within us. 
but that is deficient, but not in Christ, not in Christ. And so he is superior in his person, separate from sinners. What a balance the Lord Jesus got. Was, was he not the perfect evangelist who was able to, to dine with, with publicans and sinners, and yet it says here he's separate from sinners? He was able to minister to those people, speak to those people, and yet there was never an occasion when it was said of him that he somehow compromised himself in being with those people. What a remarkable man he truly was. And then he's ascended, made higher than the heavens. And then it goes on to speak about the superiority of his sacrifice. Verse 27, Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins. Why? Because he had no sin. He had no sin to atone for in himself. And then for the people's sin, this continual offering, whether it was the daily sacrifices that were offered or whether it was the sacrifice uh, once a year in the Day of Atonement, whatever it is, he did it once, once for all. There is in, how should I word this? There is today an interest among some professing Christians in what is termed or called Hebrew roots. I've met with several of these people around Prince George and so on. And they desire, for whatever reason or for whatever explanation from Scripture, they desire in many parts to rekindle some of the practices from the old covenant system. They don't believe that they're obsolete. And so they generally follow the dietary requirements and so on. But, but some of them even go as far to say, well, no, we still need to offer up sacrifices and so on according to the Levitical priesthood. They don't realize the bondage that that system was. They do not realize how, in many ways, not just because we're so far removed from them, but how difficult that was, how laborious that was, how, how much time and effort that took from them. The, we somehow can have these pictures, you know, where they would take the ram of the bullock, you know, and everything's kind of nice, like a, like a kid's picture, you know, you would do it in a Sunday school. The old covenant system in the temple was a bloodbath. There was nothing nice about it. It was gory. There's reports in history that says that in Jerusalem they had these culverts in the Jerusalem streets, and the blood would literally run down through the streets in Jerusalem. There were so many sacrifices. There was so much blood being shed there in the temple. There's another record that says that the priests were actually up over their ankles in blood in the temple because of the sacrifices that were being offered. My friend, we have something far better today. We now have a covenant that has been secured and ratified by the blood once offered for all. That is why as we come to communion this morning, it's not the Passover with the blood being shed of the Lamb. It's a bloodless sacrifice. No blood being shed because the once for all sacrifice has been offered. Christ has said, this is cup is the New Testament in my blood. Through His blood, all of those blessings have been brought upon us. Well, I pray today that as you come to this covenant meal, that your mind will begin to think, I'm sharing in this meal because Jesus Christ, through the power of His blood and through His intercession for me and all that He does for me as my surety, my guarantor of the new covenant, all that He's doing for me guarantees the blessings that come from this covenant to me. Oh, I pray that we would remember His death until He comes. Let us sing together just a couple of verses.
before we come to the Lord's Supper. The hymn number is 137. 137. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. We're going to stand for this, and we're going to sing just the two verses, verse 1 and 2, and then you can take your seats, and then in that time, the brethren will come and join me at the table this morning. 137 standing as we sing. Mm-hmm.